If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Now, on today's episode, I have a really special guest and I'm trying to talk to this person for a long time and, you know, busy schedules and stuff, but, you know, the universe brought us together. So I want to welcome Dr. Jayan Marcou, PhD in... I don't remember what happened with science, lots of different interesting things, but you can, you are not wrong. So, uh, <laughs> technically the PhD, uh, was earned for studying the molecular pharmacology of cannabinoid receptors and Dr. Maria Bood's lab who studied things like THC and, and Lou Gehrig's disease or LS, ALS. Um, but I've done a lot of other stuff as, as you know, we've crossed so many paths in the different like conference spaces, regulatory space, industry, academia, um, really got a, a, a mixed resume, as they say. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to have a mixed resume in the space. Before we jump into that, I want to kind of get a, a little bit more of your background. So where did you grow up? <laughs> so I, I, I'm a native Californian. Um, I grew up uh, splitting my, my youthful days between Sacramento and the Bay Area. Uh, my father had a family business in San Francisco for 20 years. And so I spent a lot of time um, going back and forth um, to the bay. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's that's where uh, on the right. playground where I spent most of my days was that you know <laughs> you'd either find me in the Sacramento Valley or in the Bay Area, um, which was um, now that now that I'm on the East Coast, uh, you know I miss uh, I like having seasons out here, but I do miss the sweet sweet California weather. 
this year wasn't the best, but it's got, it's getting better now. It's warm and hot. Uh, but your, your name, I'm just curious, Jehan Marku, like, like people would say, Oh, <laughs> how do you say this? Jan, Jahan, Jan is it? Wh- wh- where does that come from? So, um, I actually used to have slides for this when I give presentations <laughs> and I would first go through all the ways not to pronounce my name. And I think the, I really, you know, um, there are many different ways to pronounce names um, that are Persian or Indian or Urdu, uh, which is where my name comes from. And um, so, you know, Jahan uh, is fine. I don't, I don't tend to get upset. I feel it's pronounced. The one I don't like is like Johan. Cause like, I don't have a Y or an O in my name. You're like really overreaching there, but I used to show a picture of Dr. J and Han Solo. And I'd be like, <laughs> you know, phonetically pronouncing it for people. <laughs> so, so, that, that's funny, man. So your background, is it, is it Indian? Uh, so my, uh, my father um, came from Romania and he grew up okay. under a communist country and he defected, um, put himself through school in Germany and he was studying architecture and he really liked, um, you know, the, the stories about the Taj Mahal and Emperor Shah Jahan who built it. And so my name is basically just, it's basically, you know, if someone from India calls me Jahan, I don't correct them because it, it comes from that sort of line. So Jahan is like an Urdu name. I used to joke with people, it says, oh, my father has a Romanian accent. So when he says Jahan, it sounds like Jahan. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's why, exactly. So yeah. I'm like, I'll take it, you know, and uh, there's, yeah, so... Um, that's, that's where the name come from. And Marku is, is a very Romanian name. Um, there's a couple other famous Romanian scientists out there. I think one of the most highly published mathematicians, uh, in history, in terms of research papers is a Romanian guy as well. I don't know if I'm related to him, but you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I'll, you know, take- there's a, there's a DNA <laughs> test you can probably take and find out. If we, we should, we should, t- <laughs> we should check that out. <laughs> well, we don't do ancestry. So that, that's somebody else. That's the one thing we don't do in our, in our testing. But um, being a, so, I, I'm an immigrant. I was born in also uh, a. I was born in Lithuania, so it's an Eastern uh, country. My parents immigrated, uh, so I'm curious about the upbringing because being an immigrant family. First of all, do you have any siblings? Were your parents were they together? Or were they? Uh, uh, yeah, was- I mean, my parents were married, but um, you know, I it turned out that I actually have an older sister who was um, stuck in Romania until she was 18 when we could bring her here. And so, um, and I also have a brother who was, who was born here as well. Uh, but my sister had some really um, interesting stories um, about growing up um, in Romania. And, and she's in the middle of Romania where it's like, you know, brown eye, dark hair, central. And she's a curly, redheaded, <laughs> tall girl. <laughs> so she stuck out a little bit. But, um, you know, it was, I think it was really interesting. I think, um, you know, having to set you can send money or anything really of value you had to send like red cross baskets and then she would like sell the coffee and chocolate in that um to to help you know get by and things like that so um you know i think growing up um you know there was a lot of street smarts in my family reading people um at the same time loving the government but having no trust in it whatsoever <laughs> if it even so much as infringes on a right yeah. it's like they're taken over um so because you know that's where you know you know my father grew up with you know gestapo coming to the door and with a list um and he'd be like they'd count how many spoons we had how many forks how many chairs we had an extra chair it would be a whole interrogation about where the extra chair come from. I mean, the types of things 
Um, his father was in and out of jail. Um, they had a granary and did some masonry work and they built roads from the government. He sent the government a bill and they threw him in jail for being a capitalist. So um, I grew up <laughs> with those types of stories. Um, but I think the thing that my father taught me the most was, was how to be independent, how to survive and how to not give up. And, you know, I think uh, that has been a really helpful skill set to be able to move across the country, you know, with a bag of books and, and just get, get situated. And, and I think it's also been great to be more independent and work for myself. Um, you know, of course, in like college and undergrad, I had, you know, part-time jobs and I did some work you know, with a nonprofit in DC, but for the most part, um, you know, the being able to work for yourself and navigate the world and, and not to be so afraid of things. I mean, I think some of the challenges that, that people face um, are, you know, there are, I think sometimes we have to put them in perspective with the rest of the world. So I really, um, as frustrating as it was uh, to not, you know, have it as easy. And my father's like, you want to go to school? Well, I'll pay for the first two years. The rest is up to you. <laughs> so it was like, you want to do this, you do it, you know, your way. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of skills that develop, I think, from that, that, you know, you're not, you know, as shielded from the world as, as I think some of my contemporaries were. Um, it was it was really that. But I think, you know, between my, my dad and my mom, the thing that I really, I think, got from it is, is you know, if you do what you like and you like enjoy whatever your work is or whatever that thing is, um, really not a lot can stand in your way. Uh, and I think that that has been, you know, the most valuable lesson. Like why work for a boss you hate unless you absolutely have to, but as soon as you can do that stuff that you like, I, you know, for a long time, I, I took much less money to do the jobs and projects and things that one, I could have a little more say in or influence in it and that I enjoyed. And I think that's really what I um, don't take for granted about the United States is that there still is that ability where you can, you want to do something like you can create your own job. I mean, right. there's so many things in our lifetime where people have created like their own thing, like Anthony Bourdain created like the best job in the world. Like I'm going to go have great meals and talk to great people. Like, wow. Like, get the best, the best heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's too soon. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I think I think it's all right. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's uh, it's a good question. I've been on a lot of podcasts. No one's really asked me anything like that. Well, I'm like just curious, that. man, because like I, I'm an immigrant and I came from an immigrant family. In my family, very very similar. The the whole thing about communism and people don't understand that. And we were we were also Jewish in a in like a communist country. And we came to America. Everybody was calling us Russian. And it was uh, 1979, <laughs> 1980, uh, they boycotted the, the uh, Olympic Games in Moscow. And I'm like, I'm not even Russian. I'm Lithuanian, but you group us yeah. all together, you know, because we can speak the language. And there we were Jewish. Here we're Russians. So I, I, I never understood that. But the one thing that I think is different between like uh, how I grew up and, and my parents were nine to five type of people. They didn't mm. understand business. They understood the opportunity, but they're like, we're so grateful to have a job. We go to work, we get paid, we're going to retire. Like they, they adopted that. And for me, like I was so different growing up because my mind was elsewhere. I wanted, I'm a, I, you know, I was creative. I wanted to do music. I want to do that. And they, they actually called a shrink 
And they had a whole intervention for me to try to convince me to go to physical therapy school. By the way, we have a, we have a connection there as well because I'm from Philly and I went to Temple. So, oh, uh, just no way. Uh, nice. Yeah. That's where I went to grad school. As you I, yeah. I know that's a, we, we didn't get there yet. You're jumping ahead. There's <laughs> <laughs> no linear thing. But yeah, fun. you know, I actually share uh, that too. My uh, grandfather on my father's side was Ashkenazi Jewish. Um, and you know, that was also got him into trouble, I guess there's other way to say it and, and spent time, you know, I don't want to say in, in like those it's not a concentration camp, but they had work camps. They'd send people to in Russia and or, or, gulags. They called them yeah. gulags. Yeah, yeah. And he, there were stories about that. And and um, but you know, and I came here. I didn't come here when I was. <laughs> I was born in the United States. Yes. Uh, I swear. But uh, when I was going to <laughs> high school, and we were let talking. Me, let me about, see your birth certificate. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's from Hawaii. Um, yeah, but uh, I remember telling people just in high school, like. Um, you know, because people can still be isolated. You get a hundred miles away from a large body of water. It's amazing what happens to people's perspectives. But I just remember telling someone, "Oh yeah, you know, my grandfather was Ashkenazi Jewish," and and kids at schools like some of the kids would would call me a dirty Jew, and I'm like, I don't even practice. I don't go to temple. Like, <laughs> I didn't like. It was so bizarre to me because I grew up in like a multicultural household. Like, you know, we'd get people coming from Bulgaria to the house. He had we had even like gypsies coming into the store. Like it was, it was really, um, you know, it was, it was really a bit of a melting pot in my experience. And then you, you'd hit these, these, uh, I don't know, like just sort of like, sh- sh- you know, sheltered vacant minds that use school as a parking lot for them. Yeah. yeah it's a great analogy, man. I, 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 I love that analogy. School is a parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But your your father owned a business, right? You owned a small business. You said, you said a store. So when you're growing up, what did you want to do? Like, did you obviously you didn't want to do a PhD in cannabis, when, or maybe you did? I don't know. At some point, like, did you want to go into family business, or did you have other uh, things that you were interested in you? Um, I mean, I think the problem was is uh, the challenge was is that everything interested me. Um, I was also um, you know, in the Boy Scouts growing up, and, and I actually loved it. I loved getting away from everything one so week in a month. Troop so like going camp, yeah, going camping. <laughs> and I did like the extreme stuff. They like wanted to go hike in the snow and build snow shelters, like be in desolate wilderness for like two weeks. I was like, this is so cool. And so it was, you know, balancing like wanting to be away from family and, and, and figure out who I am, but also like, you know, most summers, if I wasn't working at a summer camp or, or doing something else. I was in the family business, a lot of weekends, a lot of holidays. Um, and, you know, there are times when I really hated it. I'd rather be at home on the couch watching football or something with my friends. But, you know, I think looking back on it, it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, my father worked in, in watches and, and jewelry. And so I do like, I didn't think any of it at the time because it was just like your day to day, like, oh, I'm going to like fix someone's watch, you know? And like, and like, I remember the first time I got a lab job and like, you know, people found out I worked in watches. Suddenly everyone's dropping watches off at my like lab desk <laughs> to like tinker with and fix for them. But, um, you know, I think it was because, you know, my, my mom, um, used uh, cannabis. She was born with spina bifida and like, you know, you wouldn't know it to look at her, you know, I think that's the thing about chronic illness is most time we look at someone, they look fine until, you know, they have an episode of like spasticity or something like that. But the most part, you know, people can be healthy. And I think for me growing up with this dichotomy of like, 
you know, um, can't tell anyone about the use because you don't want Dreyfus or Child Protective Services or whatever showing up and arresting your mother. <laughs> and right. so you have to, you know, it was like a very young age. It was like, okay, this is what's going on. This is what you need to know. This is what you refer to it as. And so it was very much like taking on a lot of responsibility. You know, I was like working at the store and also covering, <laughs> you know, like practicing security culture, I guess, as they call it. And so I was always curious about you know, um, you know, why were the adults I was seeing using cannabis, um, not, um, these like caricatures that I was getting exposed to in school. And so I think that was part of it and growing up with a sort of an association of it as, as a, that it can be a positive association, a positive thing for older adults to do. And I remember the first time I was actually exposed to cannabis as a teenager and someone's like, do you want to smoke it? I was just like, no, that's something old people do. (laughs) (laughs) That was like, it was so, it wasn't even like a thought to me to use it because I had this association with, um, you know, adults using it. And the last thing I wanted to be was a boring adult. Um, and and so it took, it took a while until, but but let me ask you, let me ask you a question of that because my parents, being immigrants, they, they ended up kicking me out of the house for cannabis. Actually calling the cops, having me arrested. Because my, my parents didn't understand that you know cannabis is a medicine and all these other things. They equated it as, this is a drug like heroin. So it took a long time. And you know my parents both consume formulations that we make now. So it came full circle. But being a child of, uh, of an immigrant and having that how, how that come up where your mom was saying you know this is oh, back my in the parents day, were uh you know divorce uh separated divorced when I, and i was like you know when i was a toddler and so um but he he really was kind of um against it i think um in a similar way you know it's um you know yeah, I think it wasn't so much that he's getting. He just didn't have a positive experience when it when he tried it, and he just thought everyone has the same adverse reaction <laughs> that he does. The one time that he 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 his his story, classic dad story, um, is oh oh no, I never smoked it. I ate a bunch of uh, hemp seeds, and I felt the effect from that. And I was like, mm-hmm. really, okay, really, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, know, dad, where, where'd you get those hemp seeds? <laughs> they happen to be covered. In cannabis, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I think um, you know there definitely was some confusion. I think when I wanted to study it, and I don't think people really understood it. And it was for years. I mean, um, I've been in the space uh, for like twenty years now. And when I was first in it, my father was like, "Oh, so you're going to grow it?" I'm like, "No, no, no." I'm like, I, "I have to take a drug test. I'm under a DEA license. I'm studying it." And he's like, "Oh, so you're going to like apply for one of those licenses? Interesting. You're going to open a dispensary?" <laughs> I'm like, "Maybe, but yeah. that's like it's a tangent. It's not exactly related to you know working in a laboratory with controlled substances." But you know, um, but I, you know, I did end up um, working in dispensaries, and I think that even caused more confusion because as a working as uh you know i guess what they call bud tender or dispensary agent is now the politically term <laughs> oh, really? it has it has more not syllables no more, so it's more acceptable but but uh, l- 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 let me let me go yeah. back uh, i'm still trying to figure out where you're you're going to high school you're seeing your mom you know use cannabis for medicinal purposes how do you like where do you go to 
do you get a degree? There's no degree in, in cannabis at that time under Grad. Like, what, what did you want to actually study? What did you actually want to do? Or, so, or you yeah. said, I want to do that, but there is a path to get here and I need to take this path. Well, yeah. So I had picked up bits. I was always, you know, curious about cannabis, I think, in, in, um, in that. But when I, and I got to, when I started undergrad, I was actually really interested in political science first and was thinking about law or something like that. You know, I love to read. I would like my neighbors uh, and back in my hometown, I would like, you know, I've asked them to save their magazine subscriptions and I would read all this stuff that he, like I'd get access to like the New Yorker, Harper's Magazine before you could share, you know, logins for right. passwords. <laughs> You'd have to get hard copies of stuff. So I um, mean, one of my neighbors worked, um, for the California state legislature and subscribe to like all these like really wild, um, political journals, like the nation and the progressive and other sorts of like mother Jones and, and all these like really wild stuff. So I was reading that and I was like, Oh man, this is like, cool. I want to, I want to work in, in, I think in this sort of space. And then about a, a year or two into it, um, um, yeah, I think that there was sort of a culmination of things, curiosity about it. And meeting people who are working in the industry and having conversations about, you know, um, I met someone at a party and she had a jar of cannabis. And this was like 2002 or three. And it had a label on it. And the label had percentages of three compounds. And um, this is show you what 20 years of studying will do. It was the, uh, the, the beginning of the end of me saying stupid stuff about <laughs> cannabis was, what? there's more than one thing on it. All they know is that THC just makes your heart beat faster. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 this one like, and like, I was like, how do you even test it? And, and it just, I was like, ah, this, this person's you know full of crap. Um, yeah. And then uh, I went back and I used the library um, and I looked up all the stuff on PubMed and I found out that there wasn't just information about cannabis. There was so much information that I didn't know where to begin to sift through it all. So I called that girl back and we went on a date and hung out for quite a <laughs> while um, talking about cannabis and, and really exploring that world. And from there, um, I started, it's, I think that's when the the addiction started to research about this, the science about it. Because so many people, like every, it was like a Weird Al song, like everything you know is wrong. <laughs> like, I don't know if there's any Weird Al fans out there, but that was like really what it was like. And there were so many misconceptions, misunderstandings. And like the, I think the f first researcher that I actually tore through, and I ended up meeting him and he's still a good friend, was uh, Mahmoud El Soli's research from the University of Mississippi. I mean, this guy analyzed the bejesus out of cannabis and like published all his stuff about compounds. And it was like really an eye opener to me. And then from there, I started volunteering like with Americans for Safe Access, and mm. we'd do some uh, and started working with them on their education materials because there just weren't people who were familiar with the research. And um, and then I just started looking for lab jobs from there. And uh, I, I started working at UCSF, um, the Mount Zion campus, um, in the Department of Endocrine um, Research, but. It, with and it was a really fun job. The guy had discovered IGF receptors, like insulin growth-like receptors, big wig uh, in the endocrine field. But that was for me was a stepping stone to learn lab techniques, so I could get um, the cannabis jobs because there weren't 
really any cannabinoid positions. I found out about it because of a special program called the the Seth Group. And they had funding for uh, fringe research, as they called it. Um, stuff that today would probably seem pretty like benign and mainstream. But I'd say the most wild thing they had was uh, bringing in shamans to chant over cancer cells and like recording the shaman's voice to find a frequency to then hit the cancer cells and see if it makes them more susceptible. And on par with that at the time was putting THC on cancer cells. So it's like, like that's about, yeah, you know, we have similar <laughs> hopes and those things will work like a guy chanting over cells and putting THC on it. Those just the level of like, that's fringe research. And today I think that there'd be a lot more curiosity and things about that. But, um, but, what my first, you know, my first project was looking at, um, and this was like probably the the moment where I was converted to the therapeutic benefits of cannabis. Was my first job was watching the time lapse videos of cells being treated with different cannabinoids, and these were aggressive grade four glioma brain cancer cells from surgery. And so, you know, neurosurgeon, you know, would pick up brain cancer cells from the neurosurgeon, you played them, treat them. Um, and then the, the experts would do the, the, the microscopy work. And I would sit there and like watch each cell and what happened. Did it split? Did it die? How did it die? Was it apoptosis? Did it look like necrosis? Every single cell in the petri dish had to tra- track it one by one. So if you've seen those videos of like cells dying, I was <laughs> tech tracking each one individually. There was no software at the time. I just yeah. had to like watch it. Uh, um, uh, and it was... It was wild to me because I was like, holy shit, all these cells are dying. And and I was blinded, right? Like I was not like just to keep it, the bias out of it. Um, I, w- I didn't know when I was grading them, what was, was it CBD? Was it THC? Was it, and all the cancer cells that got THC were like uh, obliterated. And the healthy normal tissue like was not affected at all. And when I was like, after I was unblinded, we're looking at the data, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought I had made a mistake. Like it was such a stark contrast. And then from there, um, you know, and that was just volunteer work in a lab. I was just like begging to work in a cannabinoid lab. And they actually ended up hiring me and said, well, if you want to deal with like the DEA and all this stuff, um, we have some projects. And there was a couple binders on a dusty shelf. I said, no one, no one wants to do this. Do you, do you want to um, do this? And I was like, can I test connect, you know, combinations of cannabinoids on brain cancer cells? They're like, yeah, sure. I was like, wow. oh, okay. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I think from there, it was, it was really just like a year or two of coming in every week and running these brain cancer cell experiments. And, um, and it was a really welcoming environment. There weren't a lot of people who were passionate about the cannabinoid space. And I think that's... Um, you know, and, and I wasn't the best technician. I wasn't the most, I didn't come from a family of scientists, but I had memorized the structures of a lot of the cannabinoids. And and that was more than most people working there had. And like, um, one of the things, uh, my mentor at the time, Sean McAllister said, Dr. McAllister said, you know, um, I know you like, we were interviewing people all the time for other positions. I just want to let you know that I will take your passion over anyone's expertise like any day of the week. And I think that was such a big indicator that I was on the right path. And, and I think, um, it was, yeah. So it was just, it was like just incredibly fun. I, I um, love that with the, the passion thing, because I, I, I always talk about that with, you know, our team, like we hire people for passion because 
you can't teach passion. You can teach them how to do the work, but you can't teach their enthusiasm and passion. I love that. So when you're working in lab, were you already a PhD? Were you? No, uh, I was an undergrad. I had no business probably being there. And it was like, I started working in labs before I had started taking biology labs. I was, was literally like, um, to get the first position at UCSF, I realized I wanted to study, I wanted to study cannabinoids, cannabis. I wanted to do this. Um, you know, there were just, I just felt like, you know, connected to it. Like, you know, I've been wondering about this my whole life. Why not like try and try and figure out, generate some data. Maybe it'll satisfy that, that thirst. And, um, I started, I got a list because I needed lab skills to apply for lab jobs. And so, um, as an undergrad, I went to different departments. And I got a list of all the faculty and chemistry, biology, even physics. And I went not, every day after class before going to like, I would open the family business and also close it and do the accounting and stuff. And so like get up in the morning, open the business, go to class for six hours. <laughs> so before I'd head to do that, go to Professor Doris. Hi, I'm a biology student. Do you have any room in your lab? Okay, no, check them off the list. Go then maybe next day I try a couple chemistry professors, see if they're in their office. And um, you know, I even went to a couple physics, just like I have a physics, like maybe it's a relevant skill set. I didn't know what I was doing. It's just every day just trying to talk to a couple people saying I'm interested in lab work. And and some students saw me pull out this list and they're like, What 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 is that? And I said, Oh, I'm just going down the list to professors every day I'm in class before I go to work to ask them if they could, if I can volunteer and do lab work. And they're like, that's awesome. Can we come with you? <laughs> and so I had this like group of three or four people where every day after like lecture, we would go and like haunt the halls looking for professors that were free. And eventually um, I got a guy and he um, knew one of the students I was with. And so we, he let us in and he talked to us and he said, fortunately, I don't have any work, but if one of you wants to work with this guy and he wrote a name down on a piece of paper and a phone number, it's like Jack and a phone number. So call this guy and he'll probably give you an interview. Just tell him I sent you. And I called the number and I got an interview like the next week at UCSF and I just started working there. And and that gave me access to other job postings for for research. And so that's how I found out about the cannabinoid program at the California Pacific Medical Center Research Institute is I started to learn how to look for science jobs. Because it's not like, you know, wanted cannabinoid scientists. Like <laughs> right. these things are kind of were buried and hidden. Kind of at the time, you kind of had to like suss it out, like, oh, this lab has this type of license, or they're doing this type of work, um, you know. So yeah, so it was, it was definitely, and so that was undergrad. So my first paper on, um, which is was published in the Journal of Molecular Cancer Therapeutics on combinations of cannabinoids to to inhibit the growth of aggressive brain cancers. Uh, I did all that work as undergrad and submitted for publication as an undergrad before going to grad school. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was just a work Super of passion. Cool, yeah. Yeah. But well, you, you're ahead of your time too, because as you said, during that time, it was very difficult to find any research on the endocannabinoid system alone. You know, oh, cannabis. yeah. I, I, I could tell you like, and, and stuff was changing so fast. Yeah. So when I, uh, I mean, I'm not that old, but like, let me tell you, like, we used to say cannabidiol was non-psychotropic. Uh, the reason we said that was it was kind of like a technical science thing. It was like, we don't have evidence that it interacts with receptors in the brain. We don't have evidence that it affects cognition, but science 
It's not religion. It changes frequently. Um, and I remember... So does um, religion, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. It's like <laughs> something a bunch of people write in a cave. Exactly. <laughs> stories that they weave together. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was at a... My first poster competition was... Uh, I think my first two were... If you ever see me give a presentation, you thought, oh, God, this guy sucks. Like, you have no idea how far I've come. But... <laughs> My first poster presentation. Um, uh, let me think. Is that the first one or second one? Again, I mix up. A so one of the first ones I did um, was uh, you know the first, so the first one I did was actually crazier. So I'll tell the second one first. The second one was a little more polished. I'd been working in research and I've been putting CBD on brain cancer and breast cancer cells. And I presented this poster. And the first like bullet point on my poster was the endocannabinoid system and about CB1 receptors being the most abundant protein in the human brain. And a judge comes by and just starts laughing. And, and I was like, what's so funny? She's like, I've never heard of the endocannabinoid system. And I've been in research for 40 years and I, this, this protein is the most abundant protein in the brain. And she just like laughs. And I was like fucking disqualified, <laughs> excuse my French. And I was like in shock. And I'm like, yeah. And I actually told uh, Dr. McAllister about this experience and he was like, he just was kind of almost like, yeah, get used to it. Like, like people just aren't exposed to this information. Like, and that's when it really dawned on me what it mean, meant to say this was discovered in the 1990s. Like, not even discovered. I mean, they had evidence, but it wasn't even established to the 1990s. The terminology is just getting used by 100, 200 people around the world. Um, it was crazy. And, and, was even wilder before that. Um, what actually got me the job studying cannabinoid ratios was I, I, after I got the job at the lab, I realized how easy it is to do research. I mean, you know, protocols are free. They're published with the research. I don't know if you know this, but if you read a scientific paper, they literally tell you how to do it. And I was like, I can do this. Any idiot could follow this instruction. <laughs> like, yeah, that was why, why everything was easy because I was in my 20s, right? So. Um, so after my success going to every professor, uh, I actually wrote up a research proposal to test cannabis on campus, like to test it in a lab. I was like, there's licenses for this. I know that there's a pathway. And, um, I ended up again, someone saying, go talk to this guy. And I went and talked to this guy, um, amazing professor. I don't know if I, I don't want to, I know it's probably past the statute of limitations, but I don't want to get him in trouble. But he, this guy was incredible. It was just a nice guy, but intimidating to be in someone's office who has like personalized photographs from astronauts thanking them for the instruments he built for their mission. Wow. And this is the guy who's running the gas chromatography, the liquid chromatography stuff. You're building them by hand and crazy stuff like that, like the detectors and stuff. And, and I go up with my little proposal about how I think that the reason people report different thing, different effects for cannabis is because there's different compounds in it and different ratios of those compounds. And, you know, a very common assumption we make now, but there was no data on it at the time, what was in the California supply. And he said, you know, uh, he said, most students and most of them are graduate students come to me looking for a project. He's, and he said, in my tenure here, I have never, ever had a student, let alone an undergrad, come to me with a project, a pitch for a project. And for that basis alone, I'm going to approve this project. Plus, I want to see if you can do it. And um, 
And so he, there were some ground rules. One was you can't tell anyone you're doing this. And if anyone finds out you're doing it, you're not doing research, you're doing a project because projects have definitive ends. <laughs> research <laughs> continues on forever. It's a project. And I got the whole thing. I got you know, keys to the lab, had like certain licensing, and, and then came time to test the cannabis. And he gave me a little allotment of some reagents so I could dissolve the stuff. But he was like, kind of, don't ask, don't tell, don't let anyone find out, and you're fine. And, and I didn't end up using the data again for another failed uh, research competition. And again, people came by laughing, like, gas chromatograph, just use your brain and smoke it. That'll tell you what's in it. And like, <laughs> I'm posting about data in 2003 about the supply of cannabis in California. But the crazy thing was, this is, and I'll never forget this, is, you know, again, I'm like, uh, you know, going into dispensaries and saying, hi, I have um, a gas chromatograph and I want to test your products and tell you the ratio of cannabinoids in them. They're like, no, we want to know the percentage. And I was like, well, I'll get to that. But if you want me to test the percentage, I need, I need really good quality reference standards. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to have those reference standards. I have to use like, you know, um, some sort of uh, like methylated chloroform or some sort of like internal standard and then develop the ratio of that. But I was hoping I could see like 10 to one CBD or something like that would be easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, so if you want me to test all your cannabis products, I'll need like $500, maybe 300 to get the necessary you know standards to do that. And you know, the dispensary manager looked me up and down and said, few hundred dollars to test all our cannabis products. If you're going to ride our coattails, you have to do better on the price. And besides, uh, you know, it sells perfectly well without people knowing what's in it. And and so I ended up, thank God, I had some knew some people, knew some people, knew some cultivators and some cannabis uh, cultivators. You know, the people who who like lived on the farms and like back in the day when they like bury their jars in the woods, like like basically supported my research, gave me products to test, different extracts, different things, and and. Then like tooth and and then um you know with that work um I also got connected with uh, some of the what would become uh, some of the steep hill stuff um, working with them and doing some early phase R and D with them I opened up another testing lab um, while doing this stuff and um and it was that data that I actually brought to my job interview for the cannabinoid lab because I was like I've tested cannabis this is my own personal research and I was like. I think we should test this ratio in cancer cells. And, you know, they're like, whoa, slow down, guy. <laughs> we'll get there. But this is how we get there. Um, but they, they did. They came up with a path for me to test it. But um, I think, you know, that I think that's like, I would say that, that that story about going door to door, asking for a job, pitching a project, not asking for a project. I think that is like kind of like a bit of that immigrant mentality. Like I'm like that grit that you need to keep charging in there and saying, I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me what the opportunity is. I'm going to create the opportunity. And one person says, no, great. I've got 90 other people on the list to talk to. I I love that story because I always tell people like one of the keys to success that I see in people who are uh, successful, however you define success is this drive and hunger combined with hard work. The passion is derived from internally, like whatever you connect to. It doesn't yeah. have to be this. It can be something else you're passionate about. It's just a moment in time that you capture. But when you have that hunger and drive, you don't. Yeah. there's no obstacles that you can't overcome. 
because you don't even see them. You see them as opportunities. Uh, and, definitely yeah. a great example of that. Um, how did you like living in Philly? <laughs> it was an adjustment <laughs> from the Bay Area. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, San Francisco, or you know, where I went to undergrad. I mean, you know, I think of San Francisco like this mythical time. It's not really a place; it's a time for different people to live there. But it was like you could be whatever you want, do whatever you want. No one would really judge you. It, and the only rule about San Francisco was bring a sweater because it gets cold at night. That was that's, that's it. You know, it's a great city. And so moving from uh, San Francisco to Philly. Um, was a bit of an adjustment. I moved there and it was one of the worst heat waves, like mugginess. And, and I'm, and I had no winter clothes. And so like I literally moved, found a place to live in a week and started grad school. And I think, and then the next two years were like two of the worst winters ever. And I had like, you were, you were in North Philly. You, li- you uh, live so I, I worked in North Philly, like, like way up there, um, off the broad street line. And then I first lived in South Philly, actually just around the corner from, uh, Pat's and Gino's. Um, so like deep South Philly, like South of the Italian market, um, over on Tasker street. Um, and so I think the dolphin tavern was right near my stop, which is like a notorious go-go dancing bar. Uh, how how do you know that? (laughs) Well, I I don't know. I, have read some interesting reviews online. Um, but, uh, you know, Philly was, uh, took some getting used to, I think it, you know, I think you know, like I said, like I was wearing, uh, like I showed up with, you know, Chuck Taylor tennis shoes in a city that, you know, gets feet of snow, um, just was not prepared for that. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, the culture, it was a bit of culture shock. I think overall I ended up really, really enjoying it. And I think some of my last, uh, few years in Philly were probably the best because I started to be able to navigate the city and I, you know, as, as grad school wind, you know, wound down, I had more time to, to explore it and really appreciate it. And I think the best move I made was actually living in West Philly for a little bit, like over on 40th uh, street. And, and I really, really liked, um, you know, living in South Philly, living in West Philly, there were some really great aspects, um, to it. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, it's, it was it was definitely a, a bit of a shock. I think for me was just the, the seasonal change, but um, it, you know, I think it just kind of further plunged me into my studies because I was unfamiliar with the city and I, I was really so engrossed in my work. I mean, I would, people thought I worked in the restaurant industry because I'd, I'd go to the lab at 10 AM and I'd stay to like 11 PM and I'd come back home and stop for like a burger and a beer before bed and like I'd be wearing like all black <laughs> I'd be like oh what restaurant do you work at I'm like no I'm a researcher <laughs> yeah. like you know but um mean? yeah um we we were talking prior to the uh the podcast about the current state of cannabis and uh, you know being in California I kind of see this I saw this coming a mile away and it's not just me I mean a lot of people when I met with, I don't know if it matters I mentioned the person's name or not because they're no longer in a position, but I met with Lori Ajax at one point. She, she was the cannabis czar. And that conversation with her, me, one of my colleagues, the attorney for the state that was working with Lori Ajax, the, as I said, the cannabis czar, who was tasked with creating this program. And we were talking about different things. 
And uh, I, I mentioned to her, I said, listen, one of the difficulties are people, people are having a hard time getting the correct medicine because, you know, testing wasn't in place yet. So they don't know what to take and all this other stuff. She leaned over to me and said, come on, you and I both know it's not really medicine. And it was like, <laughs> I was like, who are you? You're the person that's creating the program. And she came from, you know, alcohol, tobacco. So when taxation started, I already knew because I know the, you know, I know the industry from the black market industry that I participated. I like helped work my way through college, you know, providing medicine to people. That's one of the things that I did. And I worked at Tower Records at the time. So that was my, my job in the, in the music industry. So everybody consumed cannabis and they smelled weed on me and they're like, you know where I can get some? As a matter of fact, yes, I do. So, <laughs> so I'm like, uh, it created a business, but I knew how the culture was. And if you're overtaxing and not creating these standards, you know, the industry will just go underground. That's exactly what's kind of happening in California. But you mentioned something interesting to me before your theory about, you know, crack. Oh. Uh, uh, so no, can you yeah. elaborate? But, so, you know, I just say as sort of a disclaimer, like conspiracy theories are fun. Um, and they almost should be called like perspectives or critical thinking, really. I know we call them conspiracy theories because it's a nice soundbite. But, you know, I like sometimes it's great to think about concepts. Um and comparing things that otherwise would not be similar. And, you know, I was reading some stuff online and someone, you know, it's, I think the comments are 90% of the time more interesting than whatever article someone's posts. And uh, someone talked, just said this sentence and it just started me on this whole path. But he said uh, something about like Delta 8 or these derivatives are like the, you know, the new crack. And I was like, holy cow. Like, here we have um, a product that's sprayed with chemicals. Um, there's no oversight. It's predominantly in poor neighborhoods. It's, it, and access is unrestricted to minors or anyone who wants to walk into a bodega or corner store or so-called cannabis dispensary. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, these fake dispensaries, it can buy it. And I think, you know, I've, I've told people there's a couple ways you can tell if it's not a real dispensary. One, usually you can't see the weed from the street. That's your first indication. <laughs> uh, two, uh, they don't ask for ID. Um, and three, if there's teenagers in there, it's another indication <laughs> that's probably not a state licensed store. Um, but he, the, but I think you know the the similarities to um, thinking about taking a substance, making it more dangerous, and giving like unrestricted access to it to a population without education about what it is. Um, put it. You know, and I think, um, you know, and this, this issue has led me to do a lot of educational stuff. I, you know, we published a paper recently on, you know, I'm not picking on, you know, Delta 8 as in an ideal setting, purified compound or in a clinical setting performs wonderfully uh, on based on the like two studies that are out there about well, it. Well, when you say performs wonderfully, like what does that mean? Because so, so, uh, not a lot of side effects. Um, it's, it's generally well tolerated, but that's, that's just a brand name right now. Delta 8 is not really what people are getting. It could be anything. Um, and I think that that's a hard concept. You know, we see a package on a shelf. Well, it's a loaf of bread. It's packaged. Must be safe. Oh, this looks like uh, some cereal. I ate. This looks familiar. 
this looks, this has a nutrition label on it. It must be safe. Um, and I think that that's, um, one of the things that I think, um, you know, I've done some work with uh, troubled youth, uh, around cannabis education, not, not even telling them not to use it, just right. answering basic questions that they have. Like, you, you know, how I, I did one thing was really an amazing experience is that a community college, 16 to 20 year olds, and they all have some like awful affliction. Most of it is substance use, hardcore. Some of them live in halfway houses trying to finish high school and stuff like that. And, you know, they're not idiots. Like they, they know the literature more than the people before me. Cause I got called in because like the person they had it doing was like in tears, they ate me alive. And I was like, did you say, just say no? They're like, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know that you can't make up stuff that's not true. And so you have to really talk to them. And I think we just answer their questions and they were like, you know, and my strategy is like, what are the benefits of using now versus using later? What is the difference between street cannabis or street marijuana and, and stuff in the dispensary? What are those differences? And, you know, and I, and I used to, I, you know, you have to use a little bit of humor. I say like, why you, why do you want to smoke a joint? It's the most wasteful way possible. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you smoke it. Like you're destroying like 80% of it. You're burning it. You're losing it there. Side stream smoke. You're only inhaling, actually absorbing a little bit of it. I said, of course, you're, you know, your drug dealer wants you to smoke a joint because it's the most wasteful way and you'll be through all of it really quickly. And then you can segue into vaporization and other harm reduction things because you make an economic thing. Suddenly they're like, oh, really? Wow. Like it, it connects with them. But the thing was, is the, the so-called uh, the artificially derived cannabinoids um, brands I, I don't, they're not even you don't even really know what's in them but they had questions they said well no it says it's good for sleep they've done studies on this product and, and they, they've studied this product they've done clinical testing and i said no they're testing it on you you're the guinea pig and, and there's been no clinical studies done on this product yeah. and i i can't read there's one woman she's 17 years old slams like the table it's like people are you hearing this they're testing their products on us. <laughs> I was like, well, I reached one person. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's just it's, getting people to think about some of um, that work. Cause you know, I've, I've worked on some of the standards, like the cannabis monograph that helped set some of the testing standards in like Washington state. Um, and you know, and, and the, the synthetic cannabinoid thing goes way back. It's actually, was my first case as an expert witness was in synthetic cannabinoids. A guy thought he was obeying the law at a smoke shop ironically located across the street from the courthouse where he was being tried and he had all these cannabinoids um synthetic cannabinoids um artificially derived whatever the hell you want to call them and this was in 2010 or something and they are just called everything a synthetic cannabinoid and i got a couple of them thrown out because they just weren't cannabinoids it's like i don't know what the hell these are but yeah these these have enough information and check that box that boxes you need to be able to make a determination to classify them as a cannabinoid, but you know, he, it was, um, you know, like three to seven years per cannabinoid that he got caught with, um, at a store and he thought he was obeying the law. And, you know, the, I think it was, uh, you know, I, it was, uh, you know, there's a, the case law Shrack versus uh, state of Kansas. If you want to read more about that court case, but, um, it's, yeah. it's interesting because like having these, uh, cannabinoids i guess but not having any testing there's no testing on the package like you're you're actually going in and you're buying you know there's products you buy at a gas station okay fine you expect to get you know some certain quality 
But if people are going in and buying a product and it doesn't have any test results whatsoever, it's kind of odd that people are putting in their bodies and they're and they're swearing that this is what it is. Well, how do you even know where you're putting your body? How do you know it's not going to cause harm? So I find it fascinating. You know, people want to get high and I get it. And I understand that people want to consume, but you know, before you do that, like weigh the risk. And I, that's why, you know, your analogy of, of this whole crack thing, you know, synthetics have been around for like, you know, the far, what's the difference? The pharmaceutical industry is uh, giving you synthetic cannabinoids, yeah. they give you marinola, but at the very least, whether you side effects, whether at least you know that it's consistent, it's a product and, and somebody else right. had done some sort of research. Now you're putting something in your body that isn't, you know, Johnny may have made in his, uh, in his back room and whatever, whatever, like you were saying, sprayed stuff, yeah. you know, it's- and there's, there's stories like this, um, you know, throughout the decades, like the guy who wanted to synthesize heroin and he come up with a way to make, uh, I think it was morphine and he made the, like an enantiomer of it, like a mere version of it or a slightly altered it. You, Someone, someone fact check me on Wikipedia, but um, basic story is he made it and it, it had a flaw in it that he couldn't see and people used it all got Parkinson's. It just destroyed the dopamine exactly. neurons. And I think in their hippocampus and yep. like they, they developed Parkinson's because this guy was like, I got a new artificially derived morphine. Yeah. And, what? and I think about that a lot. You know, we, we, we have THC and CBD and like the, the acidic counterparts to that and CBN and even CBG, I mean, we have these compounds that are naturally, they're made on the plant. And, you know, they've been used, basically people have been ingesting those for, for long periods of time, albeit in smaller amounts, but we, we know that the, what the risks are with those. We know the safety profile of those. Like, you know, we can even say that, like, those are relatively safe compounds. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you what will you die from first? You know, uh, what could you get access to first? You know, enough lethal sugar or enough lethal THC? Like, you know, when we start to compare them, it gets interesting. But I, um, you know, we we assume because of the main ingredients on cannabis are safe that everything we call a cannabinoid is safe, and that you know that simply isn't true. Um, I used to I I saved this video from a long time that I used to show people in private. Uh, I don't think I I don't know where the clip is. It got lost over the years. But um, I was collaborating with a guy, and he did animal research, and he gave animals uh, cannabinoids, and they were playing with some experimental ones, some artificially derived ones in the lab and doing this all under like things. And then the typical animal thing to do is you have an open arm teammates. It's like a T it's like a plus sign and one, some part is covered and some parts open. And if the animals out in the open part, they're, they're not having a bad drug experience. They're not anxious. If they're hiding in the closed part of the maze, they're, they're anxious because a natural tendency of, of rodents and, and a lot of mammals is to explore their space and explore their environment. And he showed this video at a lab meeting, uh, just, you know, just 10 people in the room and everyone else was like, yeah, whatever. But I mean, it really, it really like, I was like, I ha- what the hell's happening here? But this rat, um, uh, literally stopped on the open arm of the te- teammates. At first it's kind of funny. It just like stops and just starts staring off into space. Like, like your buddy who got too stoned at a concert yeah. or something. <laughs> and then it starts like scratching itself. And, and, and what started happening was, is it got an itch that couldn't satisfy. And it just starts twitching and scratching itself and falls off the maze. I had never seen that in all the animal research stuff I'd reviewed. 
and then is still like trying to scratch this itch um, on the floor after it fell like off a maze, which typically does not happen um, in any like study. Like even the researcher was like, what the heck is happening here? And, you know, that was, um, you know, that was a, a cannabinoid type compound. And, and, and it was, uh, I think it really kind of stuck with me because I was, again, I was like, there's enough people studying the abuse potential and the dangers of cannabinoids. I want to study therapeutic stuff. And then after that, I was like, you know, I really need to balance out my sauce here. <laughs> I have to, like, you know, talk about the good and the bad and, and weigh those, those things together. And that was, I mean, it was so surprising to me. Like every time you think you have a grip on science or understanding of something, like nature will throw you these curveballs. And, yeah. and you're just like, I was not expecting that. You know? But it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good example of, uh, and I see like things going on nowadays with these uh, concentrates and people that have predisposition to psychosis. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, but, you know, we look at the genetic predispositions of people and all that stuff. And if you're predisposed to that, it feels to me like people are just, there's too much anandamide. There's too much, uh, uh, you know, they're consuming too much. And it's triggering their genetic predispositions at some point uh, where, you know, back in the day, you're getting very little THC in your cannabis. So if people are consuming a certain amount, you know, it's, uh, it may not be triggering epigenetically their predisposition. But now I was on a show and this guy is like, well, I equate, uh, you know, uh, smoking one joint is like drinking one beer. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> not anymore. I mean, maybe you're Acapulco gold back in the, in the seventies yeah. with uh, it's uh, you know, 5% THC, but you're, you're consuming, you know, I, I had an experience. I don't have these predispositions personally, right. uh, luckily, but I tried this, uh, concentrated, uh, you know, clear is 99% THC and holy shit. Like my heart was racing. I, I, I was so high unnecessarily so there is room for this you know people that need pain relief or, we, we, or yeah we see it in in every medicine you know right. if i was to tell you um there's a group of patients out there who consume more opioids than anyone and say that they don't feel any intoxicating or very little intoxicating effects but they have to use the maximum doses to treat their symptoms I mean, we're all going to jump to a stereotype real quick, but that is the plight of sick, people with sickle cell anemia. And most yeah. people who have sickle cell anemia, you know, come from a conserved genetic lineage and, you know, and, and they also share SIPs, the liver enzymes. And most people, because of this like ancestry of sickle cell anemia, one of the things that's also passed on is enzymes that rapidly metabolize opioids. Talk yeah. about like a messed up situation. You have a chronic pain condition. And your body rapidly metabolizes opioids so much so that you have to push the regulatory limits of what is prescribed and be questioned all the time. And the, and the reason I bring that up, you know, obviously you're, um, you know, doing genetic testing so people can get more familiar with how things might be interacting with them. But you know, just because you know old Jimbo can s smoke clear and and feel <laughs> fine, it might be genetics, body yeah. weight, other other factors, yep. and. You know, I think that that's something to think about. The same thing with alcohol. You know, some people, uh, or, or co coffee is the one I typically use for for students as well. I say, you know, like I, 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 some people can drink a cup of coffee like hours before going to bed. Some people smell coffee 
and they can't sleep. You know, like, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a hundred percent. And I like looking at my own uh, sip genes, like two C nine, uh, normal, uh, one nine CBD. I'm an ultra rapid metabolizer. So when people, I talk to people all the time and three or four normal as well, but I, I talk to people and like, you know, CBD doesn't really do anything for me. Well, how much do you take? Take a dropper full. I'm like, I take a dropper full. I make expensive urine. It doesn't do anything. It just metabolizes it quickly and, I, <laughs> and, I, and it's gone. <laughs> so I only get, like, I have to take a little bit more, but yeah. I, I'm aware of that. So we, we all have our own personalized experiences with that. It definitely makes sense. You know what I wanted to ask you? In your research and in ratios of compounds, what have you... Like, and I, I know this is a, such an open-ended question that can be a whole podcast in itself, but are there certain things that you said, okay, well, apoptosis or these types of cancers? Because uh, like I talked to uh, David Meary, Daddy, yeah, about yeah. this numerous times, and he's doing this kind of work as well. And he's like, oh, uh, three receptor binding sites, and we have AI that's studying all this. Okay, great. Uh, but is there anything that we can kind of point to that says, you know what? These sort of ratios, these compounds have shown some efficacy in in this, uh, or or is it too premature? You know, I think that's a it's a great question. So, um, uh, you know, I've reviewed the I haven't reviewed the the literature on you know um, some aspects of that in, in a little bit, but because um, I'm just trying to like qualify what I'm about to say, but most studies. Right, that we know about interactions are either a one to one ratio of THC to CBD, or um, I think, you know, that there, or it's like, um, you know, all THC and very little CBD. Um, and we're just starting to really see studies that have like, you know, these different ratios in, in human beings. But I think that there is, I think there really is something to, um, dialing in um, THC and CBD, and I think it's because, you know, to what you brought up, you know, uh, the the binding sites, um, and that was, you know, one of the things that I worked on towards the end of my thesis was on one of the new binding sites, new quote unquote on um, cannabinoid receptors. That's the allosteric modulators, of which uh, CBD is a um, a negative allosteric modulator. It makes it more difficult for things like THC to interact with, and. Um, and, and to that point, also looking at since some of synthetic cannabinoids, uh, like the JWH series, and I don't know if that's alphabet soup for people, but there's these, um, <laughs> cannabinoids that have indole rings that people have made that, that are basically have a nitrogen in them. And they look a little weird because, because plant cannabinoids don't have a nitrogen in them, but they bind to, they just fit into a different part of the receptor as well. It kind of cause these, you know, interesting signaling cascades, mm-hmm. but because I think CBD has its own special way of interacting with the cannabinoid receptor, making that, that, you know, if you think of it as a lock, right, it makes it a little more difficult to open that lock. I think that opens up a lot of interesting opportunities to modulate the system. We know it's possible. We have a naturally occurring negative allosteric modulator, which means there might be a positive allosteric modulator out there too, which you could be like, what does it feel like? to get an anandamide rush. Well, if you've ever been hungry or woken up sleepy, yeah. you might know. But if you're even more curious, it'd be interesting to see what just positively modulating that receptor so it's more, more efficient. Um, so I, I still feel like the story of THC and CBD and how they interact 
And and I drilled down in, in our research, we got down to, I wasn't going to rest. I, you know, the result was cool. Like, hey, look, we put THC and CBD together. And it was all determined mathematically by adding increasing doses of each compound, sometimes keeping one dose straight while increasing the other and finding mathematically what we thought would be the best interaction. And, you know, it was a four to one ratio of um, THC to CBD. So it was more THC and less CBD. And, and, and that seemed to just, at least in these aggressive brain cancer cells, grade four gliomas, um, cause a specific signaling cascade having to do with um, phosphorylated ERK. And I apologize mm. to the listener for <laughs> alphabet soup of compounds. Uh, who cares? But, I'm, a, I'm yeah. curious. Who cares about okay. listeners? But that, that, was, um, that was one thing <laughs> we saw specifically in the cancer cells that wasn't triggered with either compound alone in those cells. I mean, and I keep saying those cells because you know it may not be the same in the liver or healthy tissue. Yeah, for sure. But, but I think... That to me is always struck me like, wow, no one, you know, it's like one other person in the world who's starting to drill down on this stuff. And it's, it is Dr. Did, you know, Diddy Miri. Like, and, and we've had the, I had the pleasure. I was at a, of like, he followed me uh, right after we were doing these pitches for a research center. And I went and then he went and I was like, oh my God. Like, cause he just like blows it out of the water. He's like yeah. such a great presenter and his slides are amazing. I was like, oh my God, I, put this presentation together on the plane because I was running late. <laughs> but but it's like it's like it just it boggles my mind that there aren't like 50 people like him doing this work. Um because it's it seems to so influence the industry. Every like marketing claim, um discussions with patients um or even just um you know people who are using it recreationally or or the adult use consumers um you know, or even regulators are trying to figure out what products should they allow in their state, what products should require more testing, what products are more safe, which are less safe, and being able, I think, to articulate why a compound with you know more CBD in it than not might be less risky than one that's like doesn't. I think they, you know, being able to articulate that and and, and the nuances of that is still tricky, but you know, I just I guess like for me, I'm I'm I've seen some research where people have found that like oh if we treat a rat with um chemotherapy and we give it a combination it works better than you know either thing alone yeah. um so you know i think that just um it's you know yeah and i think you know sativex i think for me really was extremely validating in some ways because here's something that's a one-to-one ratio and my favorite thing about sativex is it's not one plant they're growing they they took two, yeah. took a hash oil extract of a THC rich plant and a hash oil extract of a CBD, and they mixed it together. Yeah. I'm like, like it was so simple and so elegant, but yet so complicated. And, and I feel like, you know, these things don't have to be that complicated. And I feel like the cannabis space is starting to kind of do a bit of this 180, where they're like, you know what, let's just go back to like take some CBG extract and, and, and maybe mix it with this. Like we don't have to start like you know, derivatizing new agents. Um, well, well, I think the pharmaceutical like industry is trying to figure that out too. And that's maybe why the industry is heading that way. And then you start introducing terpenes and stuff and it's like, holy shit, it just got way more complicated than it was. What, what do you mean? You have these compounds, you have cannabinoids, you have minors, now you're adding terpenes. It just like the yeah. pharmaceutical industry has a very hard time like connecting to that. Uh, they're, they're used to isolated molecules. Yeah. Or, and I think, you know, cannabis as it exists in its natural state, like just growing outside, um, you know, I'd say that it's, it, I, how do I say that? Um, 
it's going to be easy to misconstrue what I say, but I'd say in its natural form, it is not well suited for the fireworks that are needed for a clinical study, the right. dramatic impact it might have on health, the, um, you know, like, cause again, we're talking about a bud light as it were, if you're going to compare it to beer, you know, if you have a small percentage of THC, like, you know, just a few percent, um, you know, it's, it's really, and, and science always has a way of like making me scratch my head. You know, I went and visited my colleague, uh, Mahmoud El-Soli at the university of Mississippi earlier this year for a conference. And, you know, um, you know, it's always amazing going there cause they have an amazing, um, drug library. And, and I literally mean like confiscated stuff from the decades. And it is just amazing. All this stuff for like ongoing court cases and stuff. But, but he, um, you know, talking about some of that stuff, he was telling me stories cause asking him, you know, about some of the stuff he says and his colleagues say, so well, wh- what do you mean that your stuff is potent? You know, cause I know your stuff is standardized. There's never been a recall. Like it's good enough for clinical studies, but you say it's potent. And, and when I look at a 5% THC cannabis cigarette or three and a half percent, and then I look at what's sold, I'm just saying by comparing those two, I would put one, uh, not yours in the potent category. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. And he says, but let me tell you what happens in the clinical studies. When we sit people in a room and force them to smoke our cannabis, <laughs> we don't force them. It's not like they're shoving it down their throats, but you sign up for these clinical studies and the protocol is smoke the entire joint. People who even claim to be experienced cannabis users could not finish an entire University of Mississippi grown cannabis, despite all the things we hear about it. And I find that to be like interesting. Like they even had little calipers for people to smoke it down to the roach. And most people did not want to finish it, not because it was bad tasting, but because they're already zonked or reaching yeah. that, that level. So I, I do think that we overestimate routinely, um, except in some cases if we discussed how much cannabinoids we need for an effect. And I think yeah. that because there's a delay, like we think, oh, we're inhaling it, we feel it instantly. It's like, no, little placebo effect first. Followed Dude, by the a hundred percent agree with you uh, on the. There, there's a really narrow therapeutic window, and you just have to hit that. And that's why I was saying when people start going above and beyond it, it's unnecessary. So I, co- I completely, completely agree with you. Um, I want to. I have some questions that when I uh, ask, I ask uh, you know all, all my guests. But be, before I get into uh, you know some maybe some fun questions. Let's see. What, what are you uh, working on uh, today that y- you would like to share? What, uh, oh, so there's so many um, cool projects. Um, and I would say if anyone's thinking about, oh, should I go to school? Should I stay in school? Should I get a PhD? Stay in school as long as you can. Get as many certificates, degrees, all that stuff, because it'll pay dividends. Like I would say, one, I love working with state regulators. Um, you know, so I got to I got to work on a project in Delaware helping to um, rewrite the regs. And again, I was not like the Mon Capitan in charge of that, but it was like, oh my God, we're we're like preparing for the future. This is like so cool. And so just having that mixed background in policy from volunteer work as well as working on standards and, and being able to apply that science. And that, that's ongoing work um, with different states. Super fun. Um Another thing I'm really excited about is moving a little bit into the biotech space and exploring um, right now with um, Aeromark Therapeutics, a colleague and me and some some Purdue prof- uh, a Purdue professor are putting together like a pitch deck and like literally pitching. We want to develop um, some 
they may not be cannabinoids, but we're starting with cannabinoids. And if it, if that works, great. But you know, we have a plan to to look at cannabinoids in the vanilloid system. And mm-hmm. so, getting to work in the biotech space and actually being like, you know, because for so long, um, I've even had to bootstrap some research. I actually gave a presentation a while ago uh, <laughs> over winter break about all the research I've published has been unfunded, which has been like two case reports and even. A, a, a study where we tracked patients who used opioids in cannabis in Delta in the state of Delaware. And like, you know, so it was like, um, actually having a shot to really make an impact is exciting. I'm um, having a lot of fun on my podcast, how to launch an industry. Um, that has been an incredibly fun as well. Cause you've been around the space 20 years. You can invite all sorts of cool people have super nerdy conversations, just like, uh, on your, on your cast as well. Like it's, it is really fun. Um, I've been doing some learning more and more about epidemiology and pharmacoepidemiology. And um, like I said, we just, some colleagues and I just published a paper um, on um, how dro- adverse events to substances are tracked by the mm-hmm. FDA's adverse events reporting system. And, and we went in there and I mean, this is laborious work. And I requested all these case reports and the FDA said they can only send me five at a time. And I don't know if this is like a big freaking joke, but they sent me a CD like with the five <laughs> PDFs on it. Could have emailed it, but they can't for some reason. So they sent me a CD and the CD was a novelty CD that looked like an analog record. And I was like, this is really <laughs> cool, but I don't know where the last computer I had that has a disk drive is. Like I had to like go through my closet to find <laughs> right. like my old... PC from grad school. But, you know, we found some really interesting stuff and I think um, doing that work is great. The last thing I'll say about that is um, I compared, uh, I have a poster about this that I presented at the Cannabinoid Research Society meeting last year, but um, I compared THC and psilocybin's adverse event reporting. And, I mean, you would not even have an idea what psilocybin does uh, in the human body compared to THC because, I mean, it's just like, it is not very good at tracking those things and also in the fda database psilocybin is spelled with an e at the end so if you don't know how to spell it correctly no searches because i was putting psilocybin in there i'm like it's not coming up and so and like i think it was stacy gruber was like it's psilocybin and i'm like oh why is it spelled that way nobody knows um, so so if you're trying to report adverse events or experiences with, with substances it, it can be can be tricky so um, and that that works continuing and doing some um, clinician education stuff and, and continuing still I still train um, for like the last 10 years I still still do uh, science talks for people who are getting their training certificates to to work at dispensaries or entry-level positions in the cannabis industry and I have so much fun with that because I get to I think that's probably the most rewarding thing is seeing all those young people in the early 20s who are interested about cannabis. And I get to give the lecture and scientific information that I wish I had had at the time that would have saved me so much time and exposed me to the ideas and concepts that I needed to move things forward with my, with my intentions. And, and so I think that has been um, tremendously awesome with um been working with Sarah Trent and NJ Canisert, as well as this group called Cerium to do a lot of like, you know, the cannabis education I wish was available when I was a student. I love that. Yeah, it's great. All right. So here's the tough questions. Please describe your first experience with cannabis. Oof. Uh, gosh. Um, 
Let me think. Um, you know, it was with flour material and it was smoked. And, um, you know, I have to say it was, it was mild sauce. I have to say it was, there's a lot of, I think, anxiety about it, but I think that anxiety went away really quickly. So, um, I think, um, yeah, I, I did not, it was not a negative experience, but it wasn't like a blown out of my mind experience either. It was, it was, it was interesting, you know, and it was, it was pleasant. It was, it was just, it was a really, I think, calm, pleasant experience. I mean, I was, um, you know, at someone's house, I wasn't like out in an unfamiliar environment right. with a lot of noises and unpredictability, you know, it was with trusted friends trying something for the first time. And I think that, um, that, that went a long way to that first experience. So safe space. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So I'm a, I'm a big music guy. I have some music questions. If, uh, I don't know if you are or not, but, uh, uh, do you remember the very first concert that you ever attended? Oh gosh. Um, that is tricky. Uh, you know, the first, I remember, I think the first festival I went to, and it was put on by Tower Records in Sacramento at this like campground. And there were like four or five stages. And I have no idea who any of the artists were, but it was <laughs> just, I mean, it was Tower Records at the time, which yeah. would put on anything that was good and weird and like just amazing. And then I think after that, um, my first like independent concert was with uh, two or three friends from high school. And we went to a small theater in Sacramento. I think it was like an old church that had been converted and um, into a show. And it like we saw, I think Blink-182 played, Smash Mouth played, um, New World Order was there also. I mean, it was like just band after band um, that was like just ripping through the 90s hits. <laughs> so yeah, I think that was, that was probably one of the... Um, first like rock concerts i think um yeah so all right well so another music follow-up question um for next year you can only listen to five albums but i'm going to preface if you don't remember the name of the album you can just say this an um, album by x artist or whatever that is yeah what would those five albums be and and i'm going to preface i'm giving you time to think i'm going to preface by saying this can change, like yeah. meaning that if somebody asks me tomorrow, maybe a couple of them will, will change. But so it's a moment in time right now. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, well, my playlists are so mixed and varied. It's it's almost hard to do. Yeah, it'd almost be like my five like Spotify playlists. But to break it down to five albums. So I probably would say one of my favorite albums of all time is Ice-T's Home Invasion. That is like just a super fun, amazing album. It is. It just has every. It has like it has a such like great intelligent stuff, and then it has like the like one of the hardest core versions of Ninety Nine Problems that you'll ever hear in your life. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. I love cool, that. That is a great album. Um, I don't think people realize that Jay Z took that from Ice T. So yeah. So Home Invasion, I highly recommend it. It's it's, a, it's you can listen to the entire album start to finish without influenced out. influenced by Schoolie D, by the way, who's a Philly huh. gangster rapper. The big he's the first one to start a gangster rap nice um and then i think uh i would have to take a dead kennedy's album with me so probably like frank and christ or give me convenience or give me death um then uh you know i i like so much 
music out there. I probably would need something to chill to. So that's either like a, a Pete Namlock or Brian and e- Brian Eno, like ambient uh, music would be um, up there as well. One of their albums. Um, I think, uh, well, you know, I do have the double vinyl of the 50 best songs by uh, <laughs> Bob Marley. So probably, right. probably take that. That covers, that covers a wide, wide space. Um, and then for the fifth album, gosh, um, let's see, I've got, I've got my, got my punk. I've got my, my, my hip hop, my rap. I've got my, my ambient music. I got some, some reggae there. What, what would be the fifth album? Um, gosh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe sublimes 40 ounces to freedom. I think that would be, be one. I, I, I would probably throw in like a, a you know, some Bach or something like that, but <laughs> I think I'll, I'll stick with. Um, yeah, we'll keep it at Sublime. We'll keep it at Sublime. Yeah, I think that Forty Ounces is the Freedom album. I think it's the I probably it's the CD that was most stolen from me over time. Like that one always disappeared. Uh, yeah, I just yeah. saw Sublime with Rome. Uh, nice, close, but no, yeah, not the same. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? Um, I think it has meant as uh, I think for for me. It has been, um, you know, I think as we talked about passion, another thing is intention. Like, what is your intention when you're in this space and what you're doing? And I think that um, having those positive intentions to like pursue the truth about it and really try to understand it in, in as much as an unobjective, as much as an objective way as you can, an unbiased way. Um, I think that has opened up so many opportunities. And so for me, I think. Um, you know, cannabis for me has been really the doorway to learning about all the different disciplines of science from chemistry, biology, psychology, learning how the world works, how the FDA works was one of the most difficult things. Um, right now I'm writing a book chapter with a colleague on like the FDA and different pathways for cannabis within that. And so I think for me, um, it has not, it's really just been like, you know, uh, like Darwin getting on the beagle, the ship, like it has been my beagle. that takes me to the Galapagos to like, look at birds and come up with theories and ideas. It really has been uh, a vehicle that has opened up so much. Um, so I think, um, so I would say that, and I think it's also been, you know, very, um, meaningful because being able to make a difference, even just a few, few patients lives, you know, in the early days, like medical cannabis patients had no one to talk to. And I think it was really fun to like, here, take these five studies to your doctor and like (laughs) blow his mind when you, when you want to talk to him about your cannabis use. And I think, I think some of that has, um, you know, I think it's allowed me to say something, here's something I'm good at and I enjoy doing, and I'm able to give back to community and I'd like to think improve the space. You know, we have like working on standards for it, generating new data, new understanding, new benefits, new risks. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I guess I would say it's it's really for me has been um, a vehicle to to a really to to open up the world essentially. Very cool. All right, bonus question, last one. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> Um, let's see. So there is a bed. Um, I had, uh, um, uh, my bookshelf was filled top to bottom with a lot of science fiction 
and a lot of uh, essay collections. Um, had a, had a uh, record player, stereo system, um, and I had a small black and white television. I don't know how old that thing was, but I had my <laughs> Nintendo hooked up to that thing. Yeah. Um, this was like, you know, in the 90s. <laughs> oh <my Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but um, hey, yeah. you had Nintendo. I had an Atari 2600, so I go okay. way back. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, tons of posters, art I had made on the walls. I had what, a, what kind of what kind of posters? Like, uh, oh, I think or? yeah, everything. I think yeah. I had I think I had an Austin Powers poster on the wall. I had I was really into hockey at the time. I had like a collage of hockey pictures cut out on one wall, um, and I think the posters rotated quite frequently. I had. Um, a breakfast at Tiffany's posters of Audrey Hepburn and like a black dress was one um, that I remember. Um, I had this really cool X-Men poster, which was like Magneto shattering a mirror and each shard of the glass was a different like profile of one of the X-Men. Um, that one I actually took with me. <laughs> like, I think I, I think I still have it in a closet somewhere in, uh, in the East coast. <laughs> that one was, cool. was pretty cool. Um, so yeah. Cool. So th- yeah. Cool. Well, I want to thank you uh, again for joining. I mean, this was great. I don't know if people uh, found, found it geeky. I loved it. I, I mean, the more geeky, the better for me. So uh, thank you so much for your time. If people want to connect with you, want to engage with you in some way, uh, where can they find uh, you or more information? Well, uh, you can, I'm pretty visible online. Um, if you can't remember how to spell Jehan Marku or how to pronounce it, you can look up the podcast, how to launch an industry. Uh, that's probably your best way to find, um, so me, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter and Insta. So you can reach out to me there. I get, I, I'm most responsive, responsive on LinkedIn. Um, so just, just check it out. J A H A N M A R C U. Um, and hope to hear from you. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Brother, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.